Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. On this week's show, posting May 1st, 2015, we'll be speaking with Argentine lawyer Andres Noble of the Tax Justice Network about his piece on the new world of tax havens in the journal's new spring issue. We'll also point out other top stories in the spring issue. But first, some timely insights from Washington with Paul Brandes, who runs the West Wing Reports news service. Well, even as the U.S. and Iran discuss Tehran's nuclear program, the two are warily eyeing each other on the high seas. Last week, the U.S. Navy tracked an Iranian convoy suspected of carrying weapons bound for Libya. This week, officials are following the Iranian seizure of a container ship in the Strait of Hormuz. The Danish ship Maersk Tigris was commandeered after an Iranian vessel fired shots across its bridge. U.S. officials, as of this writing, aren't sure what the Iranians are up to, but worry about volatility in the strait, a choke point through which some 17 million barrels of oil pass each day. A possible disruption of oil deliveries through the strait would be a far greater concern to Asia, where major economies like China, South Korea, and Japan are much more dependent on the Middle East for oil than the U.S. Speaking of Japan, Prime Minister Abe and President Obama are making their case for the Trans-Pacific Partnership, a massive trade deal among 12 nations. China is not one of them, by the way. Obama finds himself in the unusual position of being aligned with Republicans on this issue and fending off many Democrats and labor groups who say it'll hurt the middle class. The U.S. and Japan, meantime, are discussing how to blunt the growing power of China and the ongoing threat from North Korea. Abe wants to change Japan's constitution, which for now allows its military to be mostly defensive. That stipulation forced upon it by the U.S. after World War II. For World Policy On Air, I'm Paul Brandis at the White House. You're listening to World Policy On Air. Now this. Gibraltar's government is suing a Spanish newspaper because it doesn't like the way the paper portrayed it as a tax haven. Now we'll be watching this case with great interest since Gibraltar scored 79 out of 100 in the Tax Justice Network's Financial Secrecy Index. Naomi Fowler with a monthly broadcast from the Tax Justice Network, which keeps tabs on the twin challenges of tax havens and tax avoidance that can undermine developing economies and shaky older ones, as we see in the ongoing Greek financial tragedy. After the world financial crisis of 2008 and recent tax scandals involving major companies, banks, and countries, a clampdown on tax havens is underway, leaving a cloud of questions about which will be left standing or what new ones might replace them. And the problem will be spotlighted at international forums this summer. It's unlikely that one country alone will be able to serve all the world's would-be avoiders, says Argentine attorney Andres Knobel, a consultant to the Tax Justice Network. But he explores some clues to the next top contenders for concealed wealth in the spring issue of World Policy Journal under the headline, The Next Rising Tax Haven. And we spoke earlier about it. Andres Knobel, welcome to World Policy On Air. Thank you. Thank you for having me. 
you divide tax havens into two large groups, the first being classic uh, palm-shaded islands and pariah states. Remind us which have been the most used and why. Well, to be honest, many might have been used. Um, I would say it's a typical stereotype of a tax haven. So basically Cayman Islands, Bermuda, Bahamas, British Virgin Islands, U.S. Virgin Islands. But the truth is that most jurisdictions, uh, most secrecy jurisdictions can help as a tax haven uh, depending on the country. So for instance, for Argentinians, usually we have Uruguay or Panama. In India, you have Mauritius. So it really depends on which country you're talking about. But then some of the biggest um, tax havens that almost everyone in the world knows about. What are the prospects for these historic havens in an era of new complexity, technology, and demands for transparency? Well, in TJN, we like to call them, rather than tax havens, secrecy jurisdictions, because the most important part or aspect of them is actually secrecy. So secrecy can, can be achieved in different ways, and that's why different people could be using different aspects of a, of a tax haven. Uh, or, or one of these secrecy jurisdictions. So you can have um, lack of corporate transparency, so you incorporate or you create different legal structures that avoid your identification of, of who you are. Uh, in other cases, it's more about the banking secrecy. So you want to have a bank account, but then you don't want anyone to find out how much money you have or, or that you even own one of those uh, bank accounts. Um, so it really depends on... on on the dodgy business that you're trying uh, to, to, to do. Uh, a place you didn't mention is Cyprus, which has lost a lot of Russian deposit and made some tax rule changes. Uh, what's your view of what's happened there? Well, Cyprus, even though I haven't mentioned it specifically, um, in the Financial Secrecy Index that TJN uh, publishes every two years, actually the next one is coming this November, Cyprus is obviously involved uh, and is obviously included. And the case of Cyprus, again, it might be catering uh, at Russians, but, and many of the things that Cyprus has have to do with two of the things that I mentioned. In terms of um, legal entities, not all types of legal entities need to provide ownership information or to update it. So basically that means that you can create a company, one kind of special company, and then no one would really find out who owns it or that you own it, especially if you transfer shares and you don't need to register that. In in the other respect, it's about banking secrecy. Uh, at least uh, from the last uh, analysis by the Global Forum that we have about Cyprus, their banking secrecy laws were pretty uh, non-transparent because they wouldn't have access to banking information. I mean, authorities wouldn't have access in all cases and present to all treaties, and they would also always notify the taxpayer about which jurisdiction was actually doing an investigation about them. Um, so in a way, that's tipping them off so that any taxpayer... Uh, or anyone who is hiding a bank account could just try to delete all evidence and move the money somewhere else. The second group of tax havens you call big pretenders. Uh, which are they, and how do they compete for concealed wealth? Well, again, it really depends on the case, but we usually call big pretenders, or I call them at least in this article. It's many of the major economies and, and world powers that most times people don't really think of them as a tax haven or as a secrecy jurisdiction. And here we talk about the U.S., the U.K., Switzerland, Luxembourg, um, even Germany or Japan. So again, they could have different aspects, but many, very likely, the reason why, why people choose them is again because of banking secrecy or lack of corporate transparency or even uh, poor compliance with anti-money laundering. And we call them big pretenders because the biggest problem with them being so powerful 
is that they also are the ones who set the rules. So we have the G20 or the OECD, and many times, I mean, at least in, in, in the last cases, they have been those setting the rules. So when you have these kind of countries designing the rules themselves, they are pretty sure that they will apply to their interests. So it's very easy then just to impose these rules or to demand things from other countries, especially developing countries, whereas the rules they design are, are usually pretty fit to, uh, according to their own interests. Well, let's explore that in more detail. Talk more about uh, so-called inversion deals involving U.S. companies and Great Britain, uh, also the British Virgin Islands, Jersey, and the Cayman Islands. Well, that's a very specific case to the U.S., and there have been many news about that, about big companies just using uh, some specific rules that apply to the U.S. that allows them to maybe do an inversion and, and pretend that now they are located somewhere else so as not to have to pay as much taxes in the U.S. But while that is a specific case to the U.S., that could happen in any country. I mean, as long as you get some uh, pretty expensive lawyers or accountants or service providers you can, in a way, take advantage of these international tax rules and then find arbitrary situations that you either incorporate somewhere else or you pretend some income that in one case could be considered equity or, or, or interest, another case could be considered dividends. So you're always playing with those rules so as to um, minimize the tax you're paying. One strategy you mentioned is the double Irish-Dutch sandwich. Who and what's involved in that? Um, well, that, according to news, has been widely used by technology companies, especially the biggest ones uh, that depend on the Internet. Um, the way it works is just it takes advantage of some U.S. rules against the check-the-box, and then Ireland, just by setting two, two different Ireland companies, one where the actual invoices will be used, even if the service took place somewhere else or, or is about customers in some other part, say, in the U.K., and then another one, which is um, managed by, in a different country, say Bermuda, which is a, a, a low-tax a low jurisdiction. And then you also use um, Dutch special purpose vehicles, which in a way allow you to transfer money, even though money, real money never moves, it's just paperwork. Um, but allows you to pretend that you're moving money from one Irish company to the other without paying taxes. And then by exploiting Irish rules and U.S. rules, in a way what you're getting is that you're pretending that all this income was now generated in Bermuda, which has a very low tax, and in some cases it's zero. And the response to outrage over this uh, so-called sandwich? Well, I mean, apparently now with the whole OECD BEPS process, which stands for Base Ocean Profit Shifting, which tries to, um, to stop all these tax avoidance techniques by multinationals, in Ireland, they were saying that they would stop the double Irish duck sandwich. Now, the thing is that they will stop that for new companies, not for those that were using it. They will have until 2020. And at the same time, even if this loophole closes, many new ones will be opening. One of such cases is patent boxes, which is allowing you to register a patent box or a, a patent uh, in any jurisdiction, especially uh, and very likely in a low-tax jurisdiction, so then you pretend that all, even, even if no research and development took place there, so then what you do is pretty much you can pay royalties to yourself in that jurisdiction, um, knowing that you will not really pay, be paying a very high taxes because of that. Update us on notorious Luxembourg and Switzerland after the recent scandals. First, Luxembourg. Well, in the case, the, the last uh, scandal, which was called uh, Lax Leaks, 
just showed how many, many companies, many of the biggest companies, were actually using Luxembourg for these purposes. They were also getting advice by service providers of one of the big four companies, uh, accounting firms, and they were designing all these extremely complicated uh, and complex structures of companies everywhere and different payments and different uh, structures with the only um, goal of lowering their global tax uh, rate, the effective tax rate. So pretty much all the income that they were generating in any high-tax country was in a way shifted to Luxembourg, and there they had some kind of agreement with authorities that allowed them to pay maybe 1% of all the world being, world, uh, global income that they had. And the situation in Switzerland? Well, the situation in Switzerland just made it very public, something that many NGOs such as CJN have been talking for, for some time now, that it was just how um, their banking secrecy and, and actually the, their banks were being used to help people evade taxes or launder money. So it just provides to some whistleblowers a lot of information of what kind of people, very famous people, actors, tennis players, and then other criminals were using uh, many of these banks, some related to Switzerland, just to hide money or just to evade taxes. Now you argue it's the United States, despite all the outrage and pressure aimed at overseas tax havens, that's working most openly to become world leader in that shady arena. Uh, while U.S. companies are condemned at home for aggressive tax planning, you said the U.S. government is frustrating international efforts to curb tax avoidance by multinationals. Well, that's actually something, I mean, something is common to all countries, which is that they care about their own citizens or companies to pay taxes to them, but then they don't really care or help much for their companies or individuals to pay taxes somewhere else or to someone else. Um, and the same happens when they are even laundering money or, or evading taxes. So that, that's something common to the U.S., but again, that could happen to any other country. Now, the thing with the U.S. is that in this whole BEPS process, they seem not to be so happy with it, and they are saying that it's just a way for European countries to be taxing uh, American multinationals. That's why they don't seem very happy with it, and they, they are afraid in some of the developments, such as country-by-country -country reporting, on what information will actually be received by tax authorities in developing countries, not only in European countries, and they seem to be against that as well. But the, very, uh, the reason why I was saying that the U.S. might become the new biggest tax haven is because of banking secrecy. One of the very recent um, breakthroughs, in a way, is automatic information exchange, that even though it's not perfect, it's still a huge breakthrough and, and a huge advance compared to the current system, which is called app on request. So in automatic information exchange, pretty much in the ideal world, once it happens effectively, all tax authorities will be exchanging information about account holders, so people who have bank accounts, and some other information, but, but let's stick to, to, bank, uh, to bank accounts. Now, the problem with the U.S. is that the U.S. was the first one to enact FATCA, so it pretty much required every country or every bank in the world to tell the IRS whether any of their account holders were U.S. persons or somehow related to the U.S., and if they didn't do this, then they would be liable to this 30% withholding tax. So no bank wanted to do this. Um, so, as I explained in the article, this led to many countries, especially some of the big countries like Germany and Spain and the UK, to ask for some kind of reciprocity from the US. That's how some international government agreements, some FATCA IGAs, were developed. But the problem is that they are not completely reciprocal. So, in a way, 
the U.S. will be getting a lot of information from other countries, but then they don't need to send as much information to them. Especially, there is a thing that U.S. banks don't need to look for the beneficial owners, so the real individual who owns a bank account. Uh, so that is already a big problem. Uh, in con uh, and in some other cases, the U.S. is not even providing any reciprocity whatsoever. So it depends on, on the treaty that the U.S. signs. So after this whole process, the OECD came up with a new standard, which is based on FATCA, called the Common Reporting Standard, or CRS, and it expected almost every country to join this. Now, the U.S. was expected to do this, and they actually gave them some, some incentives, some, some special benefits just for being the U.S., but even, even then, and in spite of all of this, the U.S. decided not to do it, and they said they would only apply FATCA. So that means that many countries, for instance, Argentina, will not be getting any information from the U.S. because they couldn't manage to, find, to sign a FATCA agreement yet. And even in the other cases, even those that have a FATCA agreement, which supposedly has some reciprocity, it will never be full reciprocity. So the U.S. will still be getting more information than the information it will be sending. And that's why it will very likely attract many people to hide their money in U.S. banks. Coming this summer are Oxfam International's World Tax Summit and Addis Ababa's United Nations Conference on Financing for Development. How important are they to confronting the problem of tax havens? Well, they are very important, and we, hopefully, uh, we are very hopeful that they will succeed in bringing heads of state, and ministers of finance, and then other NGOs and, and other stakeholders into the whole discussion. So what happens many times is that, as I was saying, it's either the G20 or the OECD or someone specific, usually rich countries, that set the rules for everyone else. Now, the idea with Addis Ababa or even the Oxfam's World Tax Summit is to have everyone on an equal footing, so develop and developing countries, and to have for the first time developing countries be heard, their concerns be heard and addressed. And that's why we hope that many important things such as public country-by-country -country reporting, um, public uh, access to beneficial ownership registries, and then uh, a real serious discussion about illicit financial flows. We hope many of these very important subjects, such as uh, increasing the UN Tax Committee and making it a real, uh, a real organization uh, and, and setter of rules, of international rules, to happen. So, so that's what, what we are hopeful that, that might happen or that will happen. Let's talk about some of the global initiatives that your tax justice network supports. First, public central registries of beneficial ownership. What does that mean? What would it achieve? That is very likely one of the most important advances that we hope to achieve or that we hope will become a rule worldwide. What this means is that all countries at some point will have to publicly register the real individuals who own or control companies. So what happens now is that almost anyone, either just by sending a fax or an email, can open, a, a, can create or incorporate a company anywhere in the world, and then very likely if it's in a secret jurisdiction, no one will ever find out who, he real, who the, the, the identity of this person is, either because you create a trust and then a company and then a foundation and then two other companies, all in different jurisdictions. So the idea of beneficial ownership registries is that no matter how many layers of corporate entities are there, you always need to identify the real individual, the real person who actually controls or owns this company. This way, not only any person in the world can find out, and this has to do with corruption and with anything, you can find out who is contracting with the state, who is contracting with this other person, 
but also banks will be able to know who the real owner is of any account holder that appears to be an entity. That is why it is so important to achieve this. You also list automatic exchange of confidential information among authorities. What would that entail, and how can it be trusted? Well, the difference between these public registries is that the idea is that anyone would always find out, in, in, except for very specific uh, exceptions, anyone could always find out who the owner of, of a company is, who is creating it. Now, some information will always still remain confidential or has to be confidential, such as maybe tax returns, even though in some countries they are public, um, or bank account information. So obviously not everybody should know how much money each person has. So for this specific information that should still remain confidential, then we're asking for effective automatic information exchange. So FATCA and the CRS that I mentioned are very much related to these, but the problem is they have many loopholes. So on the one hand, they only refer to financial account information, so the information about a bank account, but not the information about who owns houses or gold or safe deposits or art in freeports. And at the same time, the rules are designed in a way so as to exclude developing countries. So either because they demand full reciprocity from the beginning and many developing countries, especially low-income ones in Africa, don't have the infrastructure and, and the technicalities to provide this information, but also in the treaties there is this fine, this uh, small print in a way that allows countries to cherry pick with whom they want to exchange information. So for instance, there is something called the Multilateral Competent Authority Agreement, and in most treaties, anyone who signed an agreement, well, you suppose that they will be part of this agreement and they will start exchanging information. Now, the one for, for the CRS, what it says is that countries are still allowed to cherry-pick and decide with whom they want to exchange information. And only when there is a matching, such as the app Tinder, then there will be an exchange of information. So basically, if Switzerland only chooses Germany, and then even if all African countries and Argentina and Latin American countries choose Switzerland, if Switzerland doesn't choose these countries back, there will be no automatic information exchange between them or among them. And that's why it's a problem. Where do you see the enforcement power for these uh, uh, reforms uh, coming from? Well, that is a huge problem, too. So FATCA has its 30% withholding tax. That means that anyone who wants to be somehow related to the U.S. market, they will have to comply with FATCA or be liable or be subject to this really high tax. Now, the CRS doesn't have the same thing. Um, they pretty much don't have any sanction whatsoever. So what they are trusting is that public image or reputation will be enough, but we already know for a fact that that is not enough, especially because major tax havens or secret jurisdictions such as Switzerland can keep the reputation by saying that they are exchanging information, but only exchanging it with other European countries, for instance, but not with African or Latin American countries who really need this information the most. Finally, talk about the importance of constant monitoring by non-government organizations and the media with protection for whistleblowers who now face professional ostracism, job loss, or worse. Well, that's a very important aspect as well. Um, so the thing with authorities is that there could be two problems, either lack of staff or time or knowledge, 
or more problematically, they could even be corrupted themselves, so they would be protecting some specific elites or some other politicians. So the more information that is actually publicly available, and you have NGOs or journalists being able to, to supervise them, then the more likely corruption and money laundering and tax evasion will fade away, because people will know that other NGOs or journalists will or might get this information uh, and, and send it to the rest of the public. And actually, this is what happened. Many people said that the last SwissLeaks, all this information was already available in many tax authorities, but still they did nothing until uh, the International Consortium of, of Journalists published all this information and, and everywhere in the world could actually access this, this data or at least this knowledge. And the same happens with whistleblowers. Many times they are not protected. Actually, the law still... Um, still prosecutes them and sanctions them. So in many countries, there is no framework to protect them. So it takes a lot of courage, and, and the consequences can be really dreadful for them because they will either be subject to prosecution, their life might be at risk, uh, they will not be able to find a job. So, so there is a lot to be done in that respect. Uh, in many of these secrecy jurisdictions, the consequences for violating secrecy laws are terrible, either huge fines or prison, and they don't provide any protection whatsoever to, to whistleblowers. Actually, in the case of Switzerland, they will reject any request of information from any foreign authority if that source of information was actually a whistleblower. So even though someone is saying, hey, these people are evading taxes, which is against the law, Switzerland will nonetheless not provide any information if it uh, was originated by a, in a whistleblower. Well, do you think that that kind of protection for whistleblowers is, again, I mean, who, who's going to force that to take place? Well, we hope that now countries, I mean, with all these last leaks uh, that had to do a lot with Switzerland and HSBC Bank, but also with Luxembourg, we hope that public pressure will start asking for protection because these people are, in a way, heroes. They are providing uh, light and, and, and they're bringing to the light all these things and all these schemes that just remained uh, completely secret and have such terrible consequences for society because they allow, again, money laundering, corruption, tax evasion, tax avoidance, and I guess n no society really wants that. No people wants to be paying taxes and trusting their politicians while at the same time they know, I mean, they would never trust in politicians knowing that all these things could, are happening. Andres Knobel, thank you. Thank you very much. Argentine attorney Andres Knobel is a consultant to the Tax Justice Network. He wrote about the next rising tax haven for the spring issue of World Policy Journal. Also featured in the new spring 2015 issue of World Policy Journal, you'll find articles on intelligence failures leading to the Mumbai terror attacks, on the future of Islam and Islam in our future, and on AIDS in the Arab Spring. Plus, tune into next week's podcast as we talk about a special World Policy Journal panel considering foremost fears of the unknown on four continents. World Policy on Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor publisher David Andelman, managing editor Yaffa Frederick, online news editor and podcast producer Matthew DeMello. I'm David Alpern. <laughs>